Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Anapanasati bhavetabha Vitaka Upachedayati From the Gata, which I said after the homage to the Lord Buddha, those of you who understand Pali will have figured out that this evening's talk is on Anapanasati, on the meditation on the breath. And I began... Uh, the talk with this gata from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Nines, uh, where it uh, mentions that uh, the meditation on the breath, the Anapanasati, should be developed by Vaitabha for the cutting off, Upachedaya, of Vitaka, of thinking. <coughs> and I'm sure that all of you who have been practicing for this first month of the rains retreat, the Wasa of 2542, would know that the thinking which occurs in the mind, the, the thoughts, the inner speech, is one of the greatest obstacles uh, to the development of the mind uh, in meditation. And it is uh, the word of the Buddha, the advice of the Buddha, to develop anapanasati, the meditation on the breath, uh, for many reasons, but specifically for the overcoming of thought, of thinking. He gave many uh, tools to use uh, to deal with different defilements of the mind. <coughs> As you all know, that he gave the tool of a super uh, meditation, the meditation on the foul, the disgusting, the ugly, in order to overcome raga or lust, desire. He gave the tool of metta, of loving-kindness to overcome the hatred and ill-will called dosa. But in this particular case, when he was talking about the defilement of thinking, uh, the Lord Buddha gave this beautiful tool of anapana, sati, the mindfulness which goes along with the breath. And the reason being is that without a focus, <coughs> without something to really catch the mind onto, Eventually, thinking, thought, will arise in the mind. And once thinking arises in the mind, it's just so easy to take hold of the mind. And once it's taken hold of the mind, you can spend hours thinking, all day thinking, days thinking, lifetimes thinking, and getting nowhere. <coughs> and so the, the method, uh, above all, which was praised by the Buddha for overcoming thinking, was just this meditation on the breath. And when we talk about meditation on the breath, we can actually see that this is not a, a practice in and of itself. There is a foundation to be developed before meditation on the breath can happen. And there is the consequences, the results and responsibilities after practicing meditation on the breath. And what happens in the middle, this meditation on the breath, will form the basic part of this evening's talk. 
But I should mention the foundation which has to go first of all. And towards the end of the talk I'll mention the the results and responsibilities at the end of meditation on the breath. But first of all the foundation, the preparation which has to go first of all is the preparation of sila, of virtuous conduct, of restraint, so that one never does anything through body, speech and mind which is deemed to be of bad conduct, which hurts or harms. <coughs> and in particular if one is wishing to practice meditation. It's not just the harm to other beings or the physical harm to oneself which one should be concerned with. It's the mental harm of disturbance, of irritation, of stirring up the latent defilements of the mind which was one should also pay attention to. It is here where the practice of seal of virtuous conduct <coughs> merges and grows into sense restraint. The sense restraint which uh, says no to beautiful objects of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and even thought which says no to them in order to keep the mind still, stable and undisturbed. As the fire servant very beautifully says that all these objects of the senses they burn the mind, they set it on fire, they irritate, stimulate, disturb. And when that mind is disturbed by the objects of the senses, by the busyness of the world, then it can never come to that stillness through which it can see the Dhamma. Sometimes the Buddha described the mind like a body of water and when it's all stirred up, moving backwards and forwards, a person who looks from above can't see very deeply into that body of water. There's too many things being stirred up in it. However, if that body of water is absolutely still, there's not even a current flowing through that water, let alone waves on the surface. Then a person, as it says in the suttas, with good eyesight, could stand over that body of water and see not only the fishes and other animals which live in that water, but can see the, the pebbles and the gravel on which that body of water rests. You can penetrate right to the very bottom, right through to the depth of that body of water. In the same way you do need that stillness of mind in order to penetrate right to the depth of things. Any movement, agitation, irritation of the mind just creates these distortions. In the same way the movement of the water distorts the light, which means you cannot see very deeply into that body of water. So we begin by that sense restraint which cuts off the currents in the mind the coarser currents of the mind, which gives a degree of stability and stillness to the mind. Because without that degree <coughs> of restraint, then there is no way that you can refine the mind further into washing the breath. It's the mistake of many meditators who decide they're just going to start meditation and just watch the breath straight away without building the foundation of virtue and sense restraint. Basically they find it difficult to do 
And they can use willpower sometimes to force your attention onto the breath, to hold it there. But then they get headaches. Then they find they can't hold it, the meditation is tense. And they give up meditation. Or they start try some other type of meditation. <coughs> Basically because they did not follow the instructions. I always emphasize this in interviews and talks. Now, there is a body of instructions which the Lord Buddha gave. And it's good to know those instructions in the same way that if you buy a piece of equipment for the office or for your home, then the first thing you should do is to read the instructions, not just plug it in first of all and push the buttons and see what happens, but to read the instructions and follow those instructions very carefully. How many things go wrong in a monastery? New equipment because people never bothered to read the instructions carefully before using that equipment. How often the people's meditation goes wrong and they waste many years because they never bothered to read the instructions and to follow them carefully. The Buddha gave very beautiful instructions on Anapana Sati, on the meditation of the breath. Those instructions began with, again, the preparation of virtue, <coughs> of virtue and sense restraint. And then just finding a quiet place. Because noise is a problem to the meditation on the breath. It is a problem to samadhi. It distracts the mind. Out of all of the, the senses, next to the body, the sense of sound is perhaps the most irritating. You can actually calm down the body. You can be asleep at night and you wake up not because of an ache on the body, but because of the sound of the hail beating on the roof, because of the sound of the thunder in the storm, you wake up. The sound can penetrate much deeper into stillness than any other of the five external senses. And that's why in any good monastery we not just encourage but we almost enforce silence. <coughs> so whether you are walking, whether you are working, whatever you're doing, just remember just how important that external silence is as a foundation for success in this meditation. And give your fellow monastics, your fellow practitioners, the gift of silence when you walk past them. Don't disturb them. Walk softly, open doors silently, even breathe gently so that they're not disturbed or disturbed the very least. When one goes to a, a remote place, a quiet place, <coughs> that can be a quiet place in this monastery, your hut, your room. And to develop that quietness even further, you can use the power of imagination. This was the technique which Ajahn Jaco used to teach years ago, to imagine oneself on a mountaintop in a remote monastery in the jungle, in the desert. Especially to bring up images from your past, images where <coughs> you were in remote places, quiet places, comfortable places, places which were conducive to meditation, places with the, the smell of renunciation, 
sort of wafting throughout the whole area. Even as I say these things, I remember some of the caves, some of the mountains, some of the places where I would meditate. And it had that, that aura, that atmosphere of silence, of renunciation, of being removed from the world. When I bring up that image into my mind, when that memory becomes strong, it brings up <coughs> the, the mood of meditation. And I can create that mood in my hut. I can create that mood in the room I stay in, in the city centre in Nolamara. You can create that mood while you're sitting on a seat of an aeroplane going from one country to another. To create that mood of silence. That mood of being apart from the world. Using the power of this imagination. Because remember, with meditation you're dealing with the mind. And this is a tool which can be used to help with the meditation. And once you have that aura of silence around you, then you can start to attend to quietening the body and the mind down. Even before you start meditation on the breath. It was for that reason that in the basic method of meditation booklet which I wrote, I encouraged meditators to begin by calming themselves down with meditation on the present moment, with meditation on silence. Simply because going to the breath too soon would mean they could not hold that breath. The mind was thinking too much. There was too much busyness in the mind. They needed just to slow down, to relax, to center themselves in the present moment in some degree of silence. Please don't mistake this instruction. You don't need to be perfectly in the present moment, perfectly silent to go on to the breath. Just enough present moment awareness, enough silence, so that when you watch the breath, it's reasonably easy to keep in mind. You do need to take hold of an object like the breath because the mind needs to be focused. (coughs) It needs to be put into one place so it can let go of the diversity of attention which is the usual state of the mind. When we talk about restlessness, one of the great hindrances, the great niwaranas, Restlessness is just the mind moving from one object to another, unable to stay with one thing. In other words, unable to focus. As we develop the meditation, we must also know that we're letting go of things. This is a path of renunciation, a path of wewaka, of being aloof, separated, giving up things. It's not a path of attaining, it's a path of giving away. And one way of giving away is giving away all these different things which you could be paying attention to and just staying, standing on one thing. Eventually you have to give up that one thing as well. (coughs) But that comes much later. Some years ago I gave a simile of the ladder. I uh, gave this in one of the interviews recently. 
when a person is climbing up a ladder. You have to grasp the rung above you. You have to hold on to it very tight in order to pull yourself up. But as you grab hold of the rung above you, you have to let go of the rung below you. And soon that rung which you grabbed onto, you're standing on. And then you reach up to a rung even higher and you grab onto that. And then you let go of the lower rung. This is the path of liberating the mind, grabbing onto something more refined, only to let go of it later in due course. <coughs> it does need a sense of grabbing on to an object. Later on you let it go, but for now you have to find how to grab on to something like the breath. Sometimes when people are meditating and they have present moment awareness, they have silence, there's a sense of ease there, a sense of peace. <coughs> and they don't like going on to the breath because it's more work to be done. <coughs> be careful of stopping at happiness and peace, which are only uh, part way, which aren't the full result of this meditation. It is true that when you work, it's tiring, but without work there's no progress. There has to come a time when each one of you has to focus on that breath and learn how to develop your attention so you can hold that breath perfectly. <coughs> it will be a struggle, but that struggle is well worthwhile. It's a struggle because it's going against defilements and hindrances. It's a struggle because it's going against the stream of craving. The stream of craving wants to be free to think, to fantasize, to know many, many things. Here we're just knowing the one thing, just the breath. There's two things which one can do in order to be able to focus on the breath. The first is to make sure you're doing nothing else. To focus on that which is not breath and abandon it as soon as it arises. <coughs> this is like the, the bodyguards of the president who don't look at the president, they're always looking in the opposite direction. Which is why in a photograph of a president walking through the streets you can tell the bodyguards from the other crowd most of the crowd are looking towards the president. The bodyguards are looking the opposite direction, looking for danger, looking to avoid anything which would harm or even kill the one they're supposed to guard. So in this simile, one way of developing breath meditation is as it were looking in the opposite direction, guarding the breath from the dangers, being on the lookout for thoughts, for feelings, of ideas, anything which has nothing to do with the breath. And of course, the other way, which you should also pay attention to, is learning how to draw happiness out of that breath. We have to practice both, being aware of the obstacles, the dangers, 
and in that simile of the gatekeeper which I've given many times instructing the gatekeeper be aware look out for consider as dangerous all these other things which take me away from the breath and at the same time when the breath comes in entertain that breath invite it in treat it with respect with kindness because this is the guest I want to come in to my mind and that way instructing the gatekeeper with those two things keep out the enemies and look out for them as well and invite in the breath you have the opportunity to eventually train yourself to be able to maintain the breath with little effort it does take effort at first but this is, that effort is just a way of conditioning, training, brainwashing yourself to be able to focus on this one thing. In the world, if you're a student or if you have to work, very often you have to concentrate, you have to sustain your attention on things you'd rather not do. Whether it's reading a book you're not really interested in, or whether it's doing a task at work which you'd rather someone else does whether you're an abbot and having to make phone calls or do things and have interviews when you're not really interested in doing that interview today you'd rather just sit meditation and be quiet but you learn how to do those things which you'd rather not do and you learn how to do those by changing your perception by changing your perception to draw happiness out of the thing which you must do that you have to do if you have to wash clothes, draw happiness out of that. If you have to sweep, if you have to sit and be the, uh, the chaperone for the senior monk, never think of that as a burden, as something you don't like to do and sit there with negativity, just waiting for the time when you can leave and go and do something else. Because if you do, you're missing an opportunity for training in Anapanasati. I don't mean that while the person you're chaperoning is talking you just sit there and watch your breath. I'm talking about when you're sitting there and doing something like chaperoning. You draw happiness out of that experience. <coughs> you learn to look at it with a perception which doesn't see the negative but which sees the, the service you're giving, the beauty the fact that you're helping spread the sasana, you're helping Buddhism heal the pain and lead to liberation the many beings in this world. When you look at it like that, you're learning how to draw happiness and beauty out of the situation. I've been teaching a few people who, who have difficulty, if you have difficulties with meditation on the breath, you can try the technique of going for a walk in the forest and drawing the beauty out of a leaf, a bark on the tree, the moon at night or whatever else is in front of you which is simple, ordinary and readily at hand. Learn how to draw the beauty out of a, a dead leaf on the ground, out of a gum nut. Not the most beautiful gum nut, try and find the ugliest. 
And for those of you who really want to do the advanced course of drawing out the, the beautiful, go to the rubbish bin, put your hand in there and pick whatever you first come across out. Put it in front of you and see if you can draw the beauty out of an old screwed up piece of dirty paper. This is just playing, training with perception. <coughs> and if you can do that on your walks in the forest, if you can do that with nature, then you find that when it comes to watching the breath, you can actually draw out the beauty in that breath. You can work with perception to see the breath as a very beautiful, wonderful, lovely object and you wondered why you neglected it all these years. And then you wonder why it is that people have difficulty watching this wonderful, beautiful thing called the breath. Because you are learning how to perceive it in a beautiful way. In the years I've been practicing breath meditation, that was probably the most important thing which learnt, which gave me <coughs> reasonable success in breath meditation. Just learning how to enjoy the breath. Because as soon as that perception of beauty came up, it was easy to focus on the breath. Sometimes you could try with willpower, holding the breath with all your force. But that just leads to tension. The best way, what I say actually is the only way, is to... <coughs> learn how to draw the peace, the happiness with the breath. And there you can actually see that that is reflected in the Lord Buddha's teachings on Anapanasati. The Buddha says start off with just knowing the breath is long or short. That is just giving you something to be interested in with the breath being long or short. Sometimes if you really want to, to ask yourself is the in-breath longer than the out-breath? Or is the in-breath shorter than the out-breath? Which one is the longest? And the feelings of an in-breath, do they actually change? Are they all the same from the very beginning to the end? Where in the in-breath is the feeling the strongest? Towards the beginning, towards the end, or in the middle? Where is it? This is just a way of gaining interest in what you're watching. You can understand that if you're not interested in what you're doing, the mind will wander off. If you're not interested in this talk, the mind will already be thinking of something else. It will not be able to sustain its attention on what's happening. With the breath, the Buddha was saying in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Lord Buddha was saying, that to put that interest in the breath, by short or long, or whatever else you can imagine, which gives the breath a quality, a texture, not just in, out, but which sees much more of this thing we call the breath. In the same way when you go into the forest and you pick up a leaf, it's not just a leaf. There's so much more going on in there if you have that interest and bother to look deeply. In the same way, bother to look deeply at your breath and then you'll find it's very easy to sustain your attention on it based on that interest. Also, it's a common problem for people who meditate on the breath to control the breath. And when you control the breath, 
this is where the breath appears uncomfortable. It's very hard to maintain your interest in something which is uncomfortable. Which is why the Buddha said in the third stage of the first tetrad, is like to calm that breath, calm the kaya sankara. And all one needs to do there is to leave it alone. If you can't leave it alone, just to mention that word, to use thought, to say calm, settle down. In the same way that you may have a, a child in front of you, or sometimes even a, an adult who has come to see you because they're very disturbed about something which has happened. <laughs> and very often when they come to speak to you, they don't make any sense whatsoever, they're too agitated. You tell them, calm down, settle down. And with that gentleness, with that calmness, with that little piece of advice, that nudge, the person in front of you does calm down. They settle down and then when they say something you can understand what they mean. In the same way, that breath in front of you, if it's agitated like a, a person <coughs> who's just had an argument or a person who's just experienced some tragedy, just tell them to calm down first of all. Tell the breath, calm down. In the same way, if there's a person in front of you, you don't order them to calm down. Calm down, shut up, be quiet before I start talking to you. They'd get even more agitated. In the same way, don't be too forceful when you try and calm the breath down. Otherwise the breath will become more agitated. Be gentle, be subtle. <coughs> and when the breath starts to calm down, you'll find that <coughs> the breath will be quite pleasant. It is the nature of the breath, once it is calm, to be pleasant. This is just the part of the uh, causal sequence of that from pasadi comes sukha. From pasadi means tranquility. The tranquility of the body, the tranquility of the mind, always gives rise to a feeling of sukha, a feeling of peace a feeling of ease. When the breath starts to become tranquil, there's a feeling of ease, a feeling of happiness. It's much easier to watch something which is just flowing in and it's quite pleasant. And this is where the happiness starts to arise in the mind, calming that whole body of breath. You have to be careful sometimes though with calming the breath, not to calm it too soon. Because sometimes if the mind is dull, if his tina midda is there, if you calm the breath too soon, it's completely disappeared. You don't know where you are. Sometimes, I remember Ajahn Chah saying, if you can't find the breath, just hold your breath for about 30 seconds and then start breathing and the breath will be very clear to you. It will be very clear to you for a long time afterwards. <coughs> Trouble is, sometimes people calm the breath down too soon. Here you've got to be very careful. If you can't sustain your attention on something coarse, then don't try and sustain your attention on something more refined. 
Stay with a coarser breath until you can sustain your attention on it and then refine it down. So each stage you should stay on for a, a reasonably lengthy period of time. Don't go too quickly. One of the problems with meditators is their impatience. Based on craving, based on counting of the days, one whole month gone, another two months, that's all I've got left if you're just staying here for the range retreat. (coughs) Don't be impatient. Take every stage very carefully. And of course, once you calm down the breath, the Buddha started talking about the next stage should be experiencing pity and experiencing sukha as you breathe in breathe out. This is where we develop that perception of the beautiful breath. This is my way of calling pity and sukha with the breath, a very beautiful and lovely breath. This is all part of the process of anapanasati. It should not be rushed through, it should not be overlooked. Stay a long time on that beautiful breath (coughs) where again you're drawing out the happiness Don't worry about thinking what's pity and what's sukha. Call it happiness, call it beauty, call it a wonderful breath, a delightful breath, but stay on there as long as you can, as long as you want. Just doing that much (coughs) creates a lot of feeling of success in your meditation. Go to that place often. If you can't go to that place of the beautiful breath, check the instructions. What have you been doing? Did you enter the meditation properly with the right foundations, with the right process? Did you prepare yourself by doing a bit of uh, (coughs) preliminary work of centering yourself in the present moment silence? And did you actually even try to watch the breath? Did you put interest in that breath? And did you calm it down too quickly? It should not be that hard for a person who's meditated on the breath for a reasonable length of time not to get into that stage of the beautiful breath. You should all be able to do that. And it's what happens next becomes the more interesting part of Anapanasati. When you get on to the beautiful breath it's easy to watch. The main difficulties in the meditation have been overcome you're now dealing with the more refined defilements. The more refined defilements is where you get the greatest insight. On coarse defilements you just get coarse insights. The sorts of insights which many people have in the world which don't let them get enlightened. They just (coughs) have, uh, they just can write books and make a lot of money from selling them the very refined insights you get afterwards. You get the refined insights, the difference between being able to sustain your attention on a beautiful breath and being able to let go of that breath. You have to calm that chitta sankara down. Calm the beautiful breath down. Calm it down, calm it down, calm it down. As you calm that breath down, that's the time when nimittas start to appear. Again, do not let go of the beautiful breath too soon. 
you should at least learn how to sustain the attention on the beautiful breath for long periods. So the beautiful breath doesn't change. It's just there. And if you want to go on to the nimitta too soon, it's a sign of discontent. A sign that you're not really ready. So often it's the case a nimitta comes up and calls you. You don't go looking for the nimitta. And very often when a nimitta calls, you should look at that nimitta and just check whether it's suitable to let go of the breath. Suitable nimittas are nimittas which are bright, simple, but stable. After a while of meditating, of being a meditator, you can become very skillful about knowing all the different limiters which can come up and knowing which ones are suitable to be followed and which ones should be discarded as you go back onto the beautiful breath. This is a skill which you should develop. If you haven't got that skill yet, follow the instructions, which are, if the <coughs> limiter is dull, it's not worth following. Make sure it's bright and beautiful. It should be simple. If it's a limiter of many things, it's complex, many objects, leave it alone. If it's unstable, it flashes, moves backwards and forwards, doesn't center itself in your field of mental vision, just leave it alone. Go back to the beautiful breath and stay there longer. If it's a beautiful breath, that should be enough to satisfy you. And stay with that beautiful breath until a very subtle and beautiful nimitta arises. And then, just as easy as just turning the head sort of ten degrees from left to right, you can just turn your attention onto that beautiful nimitta. And just stay with it. This is how I understand in Anapanasati Sutta the third tetrad of experiencing the mind. Because that nimitta it's just a reflection of the mind. And sometimes they use the word nimitta, just a nimitta of your face when you look in a mirror. That's what the, the image of your face in a mirror is. It's called nimitta. The same way that that light which you're seeing is just a reflection of your chitta, of the mind. That's why you have that phrase and I know that monks have been talking about this recently, the, the Pabhasara Chitta, the, the radiant mind. There you can actually experience something of what that term means. Beautiful radiant mind. You won't be able to keep your attention on that nimitta if you haven't trained on the beautiful breath sufficiently. The whole meaning of samadhi is to be able to sustain your attention on these things. The whole development of samadhi is being able to sustain your attention on coarse things and medium things and refined things and then very refined things and extremely refined things as you go through the jhanas. And you can't sustain your attention on a refined thing if you can't sustain your attention on a coarse thing. Don't go too fast. When you sustain your attention (coughs) on the the jitta, on this nimitta, there's a few things which you can do. There's that 
in the Anapanasati Sutta, Abhi Pramodayang Chitang. So again, delight in that nimitta. One other way of <coughs> talking about this, because I like the word sampasadana, which is like giving confidence to that nimitta. This is one of the techniques which I've developed. As soon as a nimitta comes, if it's not quite stable yet, not stable enough, I realize that the reason for that is that I'm still doing something. You know the teaching which I give about the doer. This is the, the thing which uh, is the obstacle. So in order to let go of that doer inside of me which wants to control the nimitta, I give confidence to the nimitta. I just very quickly, very gently, just make the determination. I let go, you take over. I give my full confidence to you, my full faith and trust that you know what to do from now on. Because when I give that to the nimitta, I'm giving it to the jitta. Because I know that nimitta is just a reflection of that jitta. And when I give confidence to the jitta, the jitta takes over all by itself. And I really do become the passenger. That which was the illusion of self, the doer, disappears for a while. And you come this natural process, this automatic process, which will always happen if you can only let it. That's why it's called letting go, abandoning, relinquishing, <coughs> renouncing, all these beautiful words. You're actually renouncing, you're letting go, and this beautiful thing happens. Just the nimitta gets even brighter, even more beautiful, without disturbing the mind. Just the mind looking at the mind. And it interprets this as the nimitta. And soon the two coalesce. As you just go right in to the nimitta. Just in that beautiful state of oneness, you know, with that piti sukha. Not only have you sustained the nimitta, the third stage of the third tetrad, then you, you liberate the chitta, vimocha yang chitang which I always understand as the experiences of jhana. Liberated the mind completely, so no longer is it able to receive stimuli from the world outside. Liberated from the five hindrances, liberated from the five senses. And there you've taken anapanasati to its, its uh, first goal of jhanas. It should not be beyond anyone's ability in this monastery to do that if you follow the instructions very carefully. Make those instructions very clear. Keep repeating them to yourself. It's one of the reasons why I've given this talk so many times. It's on the tapes, but I want to give it again because I know by one of the major techniques of brainwashing is repeating it over and over and over again. And that's all the teacher is, the main brainwasher in the monastery, other than the, talk, the, the books. And to make that point again and again, to be methodical, to do it carefully, one stage at a time. And if there's something which is going wrong, find out what you're doing, which is not according to the instructions. Once that experience of jhanas happens, then you'll know the beauty of breath meditation. 
You'll also know that whether you use a breath or use some other object of meditation, it's basically the same technique. Whether it's on metta, whether it's on kasinas or whatever it is. It's basically the same technique. Take something very simple, sustain your attention on it until it's stable. (coughs) Develop the beauty in that object. For example, developing the beauty of metta developing the beauty in that casino and then just let go of the object itself of metta or of a casino and just focus on the beauty the piti sukha when it gets to the second and third tetrads of anapanasati sutta you can apply those second and third tetrads to every meditation object every gamatana except instead of Say, for example, the second tetrad, <coughs> breathing in, you uh, experience pity, breathing out, you experience pity. Just watching the kasina, you experience pity. Developing metta, you experience pity. This is why the second and third tetrads are very important instructions in all types of meditation. And <coughs> Once that jhana is experienced, after the jhana has ceased, the first thing you should do is to use pachawakana. Use looking back at what's happened. It's considering the whole path of that meditation and what it was like. I said this before, within a jhana you cannot use pachawakana. You cannot assess, you cannot figure out what's going on but afterwards you can very easily and that's where you analyze the whole path of your meditation and the result of it and doing that is where you get great insights you'll find out why that particular path gave that particular result you find out what indeed you were doing was abandoning, letting go, relinquishing all those defilements which were based on craving, which were based on fetters. <coughs> you're actually practicing the path and you're experiencing the fruit of the path in this very moment. A happy abiding in this, in this very life. As many of you know, that the Lord Buddha, when he described the happiness of jhanas, used such terms as Sambodhi Sukha, the happiness of enlightenment. And I always say at that point that that gives an idea of the profundity of these states. But even though the Lord Buddha used that term, you should always know that it doesn't mean enlightenment itself, but it's so close that that's the sort of terms the Lord Buddha used to describe the happiness you feel in those states. Why did he use that term? <coughs> it's because the happiness of those jhanas is a direct result of abandoning, letting go, relinquishing, giving up so much. And you've given up so much and this is the result, surely, any 
sensible meditator would try, let's let go a bit more and get even deeper, more refined. You're on the path, as it were here, of ending suffering. And it should be very obvious after these experiences what what's happening and what to do. It's <laughs> very easy to see anicca sanya. Anicca does not just mean rise and fall and then rising again or falling again. Anicca also means something was there and now it's gone. Not just gone for a moment and then something else comes up. It's not just the the changing programs on the television screen. It's a whole screen disappearing. It's a vanishing of that in which so much of conscious experience is played out. In jhanas it's a vanishing, vanishing of karma loka. A big screen of experience. A whole mass of consciousness has disappeared. And that's fascinating to experience that and fascinating to reflect upon it afterwards. <coughs> Anicca, viraga, the fading away of things, niroda, real cessation, is actually something that's really ceased in those jhana states and ceased for long periods of time. And patinisaga, why has that ceased? Because you've let go. You've actually done some letting go for a change, real letting go, not sort of fantasy letting go or phantom letting go. You've let go of the thing which grasps. You've let go of the doer. And you realize letting go of the doer, once you've let, let it go and it's vanished, then you have an understanding of what the doer is. And also you've seen the result of letting go of the doer. Bliss. Profound states of consciousness. The sort of thing which makes this monastic life really interesting and really worthwhile. When you're going to be staying here for a while, why not sort of get something out of this monastic life? Why not enjoy something and see something really, really profound? And very difficult to for most human beings to see. But you have all the opportunities here. Everything is there for you. There's no reason why you can't experience these <coughs> immensely powerful, beautiful, profound and insight-producing, enlightenment-producing states. So follow those instructions. You have to use a method such as the breath to gain those jhanas. The method was taught very clearly by the Lord Buddha. I'm only just putting it in my own language. Uh, if you don't like what I say, always just stick to the word of the Buddha. It's the best. Check what you're doing. Follow the instructions. And you'll find that success will come. <coughs> so, meditate on the breath. And it stops all thinking. Meditate on the breath. And it gives very deep happiness in the mind. Meditate on the breath and you'll be able to smile through the day and all these other little things which come up, whether it's clay pits, whether it's visitors, whether it's arguments in the kitchen or whatever it is, 
you can just take them completely in your stride compared to the bliss of the, the beautiful states. These are just small little perturbations in the ether. You don't really give them too much importance. <coughs> Meditate on the breath and you'll be able to experience these states and understand how the Buddha became liberated. Meditate on the breath and you'll develop liberation yourself. You'll have all of the data there, all of the, the clues. It's like doing a crossword puzzle. Sometimes you're doing a crossword puzzle, you haven't got the full clues yet. How can you get the answer? You haven't got enough information yet. You've got all the clues and all the information, your dictionary and thesaurus are by your side. Yeah, you're going to get the answers, it's only a matter of time. This is how people become enlightened. This is how people leave samsara. This is how people develop the beautiful wisdom, liberating wisdom, which is very rare in this world. You find that wisdom and you go out and give it to others after you've drunk your full yourself and are completely liberated another arahat in this world. If you really want to do something useful, why not do that? <coughs> so that's the talk this evening on Anapanasati, meditation on the breath. Has anyone got any questions or comments on what I've been saying this evening? Yes? I think uh, when I was mentioning duties and responsibilities, if I can recollect my own talk clearly enough, I was uh, encouraging people to uh, practice uh, drawing out the beauty in what they're doing as a way of training in the (coughs) ordinary things of monastic life using those opportunities when you have to clean up the library or you have to uh, sweep the monastery grounds or even just uh, eat your meal to be able to draw out the beauty of those experiences because I found that with many people one of the reasons why they can't uh, have success with breath meditation is because they cannot draw out the beauty to develop the first and second uh, trainings of the second tetrad of Anapanasati Sutta. To be able to breathe in and breathe out experiencing piti, breathe in, breathe out experiencing sukha. And so, just as a way of training for that stage of breath meditation, I was encouraging people just to go out and look at something simple and draw beauty and happiness out of it. And if you have to do a duty, a responsibility in the monastery, instead of getting negative about that duty and responsibility, see if you can draw happiness out of it. And that way, you're training yourself in a type of perception which will put you in very good stead, which will deliver its uh, fruit, its results, its payoff when you meditate on the breath. Did I understand your question correctly? 
Ah, okay. <laughs> okay, the duties and responsibilities which you do after the meditation <coughs> of Ananapanasati, I mentioned at the end there, was first of all reflecting on what you've done. And having reflected on the experience of the meditation, it's a very good habit to get into and each meditation, whether it's successful or not, spend the last minute or two, three or four if you like, just looking back on the whole course of your meditation, how you've approached it, what you've done, whether it's successful or unsuccessful, to actually learn about what you're doing. That's the first responsibility and duty. The second responsibility and duty after uh, the Anapanasati is to develop the insight, the wisdom. <coughs> and maybe I've just covered that just too briefly when I said to look at the Anicca, Viraga, Niroda, Patinisaka aspects of what you've been doing. To develop the wisdom using those four characteristics. Or if you prefer to use the, that experience by developing the perceptions of anicca, dukkha, or especially anatta. To use that experience by focusing on those four things of the satipatthana, of the body, of the vedana, the chitta itself, because you've just experienced the chitta, and dhamma, the, the content of the, the mind. <coughs> and that's the Satipatthana. And if you focus on those four Satipatthanas after doing breath meditation, especially to elicit, to draw out the illusion of self in those four areas. I mentioned uh, recently to someone who was asking about Satipatthana, mentioning to them the whole purpose and point of Satipatthana is to focus on these four parts in which the illusion of self usually dwells. People are either taking themselves as a body, taking themselves as Vedana or Vedana as theirs, the happiness and pleasure of life, of the senses taking themselves as the knower, the jitter, taking themselves as these objects of mind, such as thought and thinking. How many people identify with thinking, I think therefore I am, that famous illusion, stupid saying of Western philosophy. <coughs> From the thinking, if you just look a little bit deeper than the thinking, and that comes from the doer. And it's two places which I keep on saying is the main repository of the illusion of self. So this is what to do after Anapana Sati, the responsibility and duties after developing the breath fully, finishing the task of Anapana Sati, then you develop wisdom through reflecting as the Buddha instructed. So that's what I meant by the responsibilities and duties after Anapanasati. Was there another question anyone like to ask before we finish? Yeah, I've got two. Okay, two questions. Venal Jyoti? 
Sorry? <laughs> the fourth tetrad, yes, is an example of <coughs> what to do after jhanas. I did point out that that fourth tetrad of Anapanasati, you've actually got something to really um, make that fourth tetrad come alive. You've actually seen something which is anichad, which is wiragad, which is neuroded. And you can see that the reason why all that happened was because of you've actually done some patinisaga. So instead of these you know, four terms being just ideas, you can actually relate them to a very profound experience which has just occurred. So you know what anicca means. You know what viraga is. You've seen things fade away. You've actually experienced something solid ceasing, neurodering especially the doer, neuroded. And why has this happened? How did this come about? And you can see Patinisaga has been going on. The renouncing, giving up, letting go. So you've got something solid on which to base those four reflections. Mike? You're asking uh, the sequence and the terms, where is this written down in the Pali form? It's written down in the Anapanasati Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya, that's also part of the Mahasati Patana Sutta of the Diga Nikaya. Uh, it's also part of the Girimananda Sutta. This uh, basic Anapanasati, which the Lord Buddha taught on many occasions. So if you look in the suttas, the Majjhima Nikaya Anapanasati Sutta, you'll see that there. If you look in the Mahasati Patana Sutta, you see Anapanasati, the 16 uh, practices mentioned there, and also in the Girimananda Sutta. Is there any other place? Those are the three places I know it exists. Oh, yeah, in the Anapanasati Sangyuta, the Sangyuta Nikaya. <coughs> and in the Anguttara Nines, as I began this talk, the Lord Buddha said, Anapanasati. Bhaveta ba vitaka upachadaya practice anapanasati in order to cut through all those thinking. Then finish off the talk now. <coughs>